Let's open the precious Word of God to Isaiah chapter 15. Isaiah 15. I love every Word of God, including Isaiah 15, 16, 17, and 18. My preparatory email to you yesterday was just my typical, and I hope typical, honesty and transparency about the Word of God and about study and about listening. These chapters may not be as exciting to you as some of the others that we've covered. Our church has always loved Isaiah 10 and its mockery of the king of Assyria by comparing him to an axe and a saw. So there are chapters like that that are lighter, easier. We understand them already in advance, and so they're more pleasant. These may not be so, and so I honestly tell you that. However, it's, it's every word of God, and I appreciate every word of God, though some of them are far more obscure and difficult to study than others. I put many hours this week into Isaiah 18. I very much wanted to cover four chapters today. Isaiah 18 is the most obscure chapter in the book of Isaiah and very difficult if we want to identify the parties involved in the chapter. If we simply want to look at the history, it's easy, and we can just say, I don't know who the, the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia is. I don't know the people scattered and peeled, but this is what they did and this is what happened to them. And we can do that, and we may have to do that at times because God's written His Word. Listen, God's Word can humble any honest man in five minutes. Amen. Now, there are dishonest men that don't get humbled by God's Word, but I hope that we're different. I haven't changed in my love of every word of God, but I will say that there is progressive revelation in the Bible, and there are plain passages, and there are didactic doctrinal passages that are different from prophetic similitudes like we have right here before us. However, I want to remind you, some of you went and put the effort in to get a 4.0 grade point average in school. Some of you put the effort in to get a 3.5 or a 3. Some of you a 2.5. And you wanted to get an A in history where you didn't learn anything of real value. Even if it's American history. It's really of no value in the big scope of things, which was outlined to us by Colossians 3, 1 and 2, setting your affection on things above. Because whatever happened to America in the past, you're not going to change the past and you're not going to change the future. We thank God for America as it is right now and what the Lord has done toward it. But we want to learn the history of God's Word. Because there we see His hand very intimately involved in the affairs of nations. And while His hand was very intimately involved in the affairs of America, it's often overlooked and ignored or rejected. But let's remember that we put, we've put effort into hearing history before. Let's learn this history. This first service is going to cover Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. We have 23 verses to cover. Last Sunday, by the Lord's mercy, we covered 54 verses. And I'm glad that we could do that. But let's try to cover these 23 in an appropriate amount of time and then take our break. The theme for these chapters is God promised to judge and punish a neighboring nation of Judah, a neighboring nation of the Jews named Moab. They were the descendants of Lot and Lot's oldest daughter. 
and the incest in a cave near the Dead Sea and where Sodom and Gomorrah were. They were ancient enemies of Israel, and God has a list. God has a list of all the enemies of His people and His church, and He will revenge what they did to His people. Right. It's taught throughout the whole Bible. When we get to the last book of the Bible, we find the martyrs there calling for that vengeance on their blood, and they're calling for that from the altar of God, so we know that it is inspired request for vengeance. These two chapters are to be combined together as a prophecy. And I want to show something about the timing right off at the beginning that might help you. Let's go to the end of chapter 16. Both chapters are on the same page in front of me in my Oxford Bible. But let's go to the end of chapter 16 where I can show you verse 13 that says, This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time. Meaning, this is my prophecy of what's going to happen to Moab at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. That time being from when I began my prophecy about Moab and what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do to that nation to the end. And the end is verse 13. But now... The Lord hath spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of an hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be contemned with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. God was going to reduce Moab within three years. And that would not be Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar was a hundred years away. So Moab would rebuild between what Assyria did to them, just like Judah did, between what Assyria did to Judah, took all the fenced cities of Judah, and yet a hundred years later when Nebuchadnezzar came, there was a prosperous nation for him to take down a hundred years later under the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet. So, we are going to study 21 verses of Nebuchadnezzar's judgment on Moab. You say, how do you know that for sure? It's very easy. And I put it in your preparatory. It's very easy. Jeremiah chapter 48 has 47 verses in it to be the commentary on Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. 47 verses are a pretty decent commentary on 21 verses because I've just pushed two of them aside that are timing. Some of Jeremiah's verses are almost identical to Isaiah's verses here, though given a hundred years later. Just, I want you to understand that, and let's, let's get into this here. The first chapter that we're going to cover is chapter 15. The first five verses are grief for Moab's great judgment that's coming by God through Nebuchadnezzar, his servant. And then verses 6 through 9 of this short chapter, the great calamities of that judgment. This section of Isaiah, chapters 13 through 34, and that's as wide as you would make it. Some would try to say it's not quite that bad, but I'm going to say that for the time being. 35 is flat out glorious about Messiah's reign and church of the New Testament. Chapters 36 through 39 are history of Hezekiah taken from Kings and Chronicles. So there's, there's a very definite chunk here, and it's a pretty big chunk of chapters, a section of chapters, that runs from 13 to 34 with judgments on nations. 
Okay, I've, I've made that clear in my preparatory. I've been warning you about this. Here we are. Let's recognize that and dive into these words. This nation, this enemy of Israel originated when Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. We have to read, and there are many more passages of Scripture about Moab than just Isaiah 15 and 16, but we have to read about a perpetual, inveterate enemy of Israel and the church because one man pitched his tent toward Sodom. When you pitch your tent toward Sodom, no one can see the consequences of compromise. You cannot see it. And so before we even get started, let's remember that we wouldn't even have these chapters in the Bible and a whole lot of other chapters like them and the 47 verses of Jeremiah 48 if Lot had been more like Abraham. Abraham didn't care about the good schools. Abraham didn't care about the good subdivisions. Abraham just wanted to go where God sent him. Abraham cared about barren places like Bethel, the house of God. But Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. And when you pitch your tent toward Sodom, things get better. The house is better. It had running water. It had electricity. The schools were better. They had a 4A football team instead of just a 2A. Everything got better. The kids were happier. There were more channels on the cable. Everything was better. But look at the consequences. Right. It's, un- it's terrible. He could have been like Abraham. But he wasn't. Right. And you say to me, but he was a righteous man. I don't care if he was a righteous man. Everything I've just said isn't altered one bit by him being a righteous man. And I mean legally righteous. He wasn't very practically righteous because we can tell that by his life. How easy it was for his daughters to get him drunk on two consecutive nights and for how he had taught them, trained them, the daughters that wouldn't even leave with him with their husbands because they were so carnally minded and earthly oriented. It's terrible. That's not part of Isaiah 15, but it's still there. When we look at the first four words, the burden of Moab, we've got to ask ourselves, where did Moab come from? Moab is east of the Dead Sea, and I hope that you looked at a map that I sent you. You wouldn't know that an hour was spent to find this map, that there are very few good maps available about Bible lands that will use names that you can recognize from a Bible. But it was sent to spoon-feed you so that you would know where Moab is. Moab is on a plateau above the east side of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the Salt Sea. The Dead Sea is the former home of Sodom and Gomorrah, very likely. And it's a very interesting plateau when you view it from a distance, like from Jerusalem or other locations. You just see this this plateau rising up out of the ground to the east of the Dead Sea, and it's a beautiful place, and they got the top of it. It was 3,000 feet up from the Dead Sea. But remember, the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. So it was 4,300 feet above the Mediterranean Sea on a plateau. It was very prosperous. Giants called Emims had dwelt there, but they were defeated by the Moabites and driven out. Deuteronomy 2 tells us Zoar is one of their cities. And remember, when Lot was fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah, 
he'd been so corrupted by having the good life that he said, please don't make me go to the mountains. Can I go to this little city? Please, it's just a little one. That's what we all say, isn't it? When it comes to sin, it's just a little one. Please let me have this little one. What was the name of that place? Zoar. When he got up in the morning and didn't have any eyelashes, he went to the mountains. You can read it. It takes about ten verses to tell you that he stopped in Zoar. But the next morning, when Abraham looked out of his window and saw that the whole area of Sodom and Gomorrah was going up like a blast furnace, it also tells us that Lot decided the mountains were a better place. The Amorites had been conquerors of Moab, but Israel conquered them. God gave the land to Moab, and He wants Israel to know it. Why don't we get that, that, that verse out of the way by turning to Deuteronomy chapter 2. And when I say out of the way, I don't mean that it's not important. I mean we need it in your minds to help you understand some of the things we're going to meet about Moab and Isaiah and God's relationship. Deuteronomy is at the end of Moses' life, and he's explaining what had happened to them before he, was, he died and was buried, and Joshua took them across the Jordan River. And so he tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 8, when we, he's describing their route from Egypt, when we passed by from our brethren, the children of Esau. I want you to notice that. God makes a difference in nations. He never called the Canaanites brethren. Those seven nations of Canaan were to be annihilated. But notice what he calls Esau. Years, hundreds of years later, 400 years later from Abraham, our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain from Elath, and from Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle. For I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar, that's the area around the Arnon River, unto the children of Lot for a possession. Ammon on the north, Moab on the south. I've given it to them. The Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. Okay, a little bit of interesting history. Do you like learning history? Okay, I'm trying to, I want this to be interesting to you. I'm going to go through the verses fast, except the verses where you and I have questions. Where you have questions, and I hope I have answers. But I want you to think about Moab a little bit. The Ammonites, that's the son of Lot by the younger daughter, challenged Jephthah. But he defeated them. Balaam and Balak first tried to destroy Israel. They were, you know, Balak was the king of Moab by cursing them. And when the cursing didn't work, do you remember all these things? This is Moab, the burden of Moab. Why is there a burden on Moab? Because Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel, and God turned all the curses into blessings, and we enjoy that story in the Bible. And then, when that didn't work, Balaam told Balak how to overthrow and corrupt Israel. Israel, and that was to teach them how to commit fornication with the Moabite women. Right. And that's where Numbers 25 comes up. Balaam is in Numbers 23, 24, but then in 25, it's Phinehas undoing the fornication problem taught by Balaam to Israel and having Balak send his beautiful Moabite women into camp. It's a, it's a mess, and we've been over that before. 
God did not want any descendants of Lot in the congregation for ten generations. Our God has a ranking system, and we want to be cognizant of it. The Canaanites never got in. The the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, got in after three generations. Mm -hmm. The Ammonites and the Moabites had to wait ten generations to get in. Just the Lord's little pecking list and points against that He had for those nations in the Bible. The Canaanites were all to be destroyed, man, woman, child, infant, and sucking infant. And so the Bible teaches us that. Ehud and Eglon. Do you remember that story in the book of Judges? Eglon was king of Moab. Ehud was one of Israel's judges. And he had a dagger 18 inches long, which he completely enclosed in Eglon's belly. But Elimelech, now Elimelech's another man. He's a different man than Ehud. Did Elimelech appreciate Moab? Who's Elimelech? Elimelech is the husband of Naomi. And he took Naomi and their two sons and went and dwelt in Moab because Moab was a place to hide at times. Moab disappeared from the, from the nations of the earth under the Arabian possessions of the Arabian Peninsula and the Sinai Peninsula along with Edomites and Ammonites. None of them are able to be found today. By the way, while we're thinking of Elimelech and his wife Naomi hiding among the Moabites and finding food and and sustenance there in a time of famine in Israel, I want you to know that David, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, when he had to flee from King Saul, sent his mother and his father there and went before them to get the king of Moab to agree to, to keep them. These things will come back to help you understand these two chapters, that the outcasts of Israel can find a place of refuge in Moab because they are cousins. And they don't have to go all the way back to Noah to be cousins. You know, we're all cousins in Noah. It's just a big number. And it's not the fifth. You understand that, that we're all cousins in Noah? But see, these are cousins in the father of Abraham. Okay. The burden of Moab. Let me read to you the first five verses of chapter 15. The burden of Moab. Because in the night our of Moab is laid waste and brought into silence. Because in the night Kerr of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence. He has gone up to Bajath and to Dibon, the high places, to weep. Moab shall howl over Nebo and over Mediba. On all their heads shall be baldness and every beard cut off. In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly. And Heshbon shall cry. And Eliela, their voice shall be heard even unto Jahaz. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out. His life shall be grievous unto him. My heart shall cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee unto Zoar, an heifer of three years old. For by the mounting up of Luhith, with weeping shall they go it up. For in the way of Horonaim, they shall raise up a cry of destruction. Amen 
and amen. The future of Moab, the burden of Moab, a burden in the Bible, which is the expression of the prophets, and particularly of Isaiah, is God's judgment on Moab. But it is summarized as the burden of Moab. It was a burden that God put on Isaiah to preach, a burden he put on Jeremiah to preach, and it was the burden that was going to fall upon the nation of Moab. So now you know that Moab's cousins of a sort of the Israelites. You know where they had a nation on the east side of the Dead Sea, with Judah being on the west side of the Dead Sea, on a plateau well above Judah. And so we start into verse 1. Because in the night Ar, a city near the river Arnon, of Moab is laid waste, or a region of that river. It was the northern boundary of Moab and the southern boundary of Ammon. And brought to silence. And so we're, we're getting a reason here for the crying that's going to be taken up in verses 2 through 5. Because in the night, a surprise, sudden, overwhelming attack, Ar is laid waste and brought to silence. Because in the night, Kerr, another principal city, of the Moabites is laid waste and brought to silence. And I don't need to go into all the stuff and details that I studied about Kerr and about Ar and about Arnon and the river and when their property boundaries changed and all those things are really unnecessary to you. What you need out of verse 1 is the burden. It's on Moab and because of two cities being laid waste and brought to silence by their inhabitants killed or driven out, we have the howling and the weeping of verses 2 through 5. He has gone up to Bajath and to Dibon, the high places, to weep. Oh, where did Israel learn to worship in high places? Why did they want to go up to high places to worship? Because that's what the nations of that area did. They'd find a mountain. And they'd want to go to the top of it. They'd find a hill. They'd want to go to the top of it, build themselves a grove, build themselves a little altar for their devotions to where they could be closer to God in every high place and on every high hill. You read about it throughout the Bible, and it was true of Moab. So in a time of trouble, people run to where they think they can find help. And so they were fleeing to these high places. He has gone up to Bajath. Now, Bajath is, is interesting because when we look in the Bible, I want you to turn back to Joshua chapter 13 about some of these places when a fuller name is given. Joshua chapter 13. Because sometimes in the fuller name, you can learn more about the place or the religion. Joshua chapter 13 and verse 17. Now Reuben got some of the territory that Moab had. And so they'd be, they'd be fighting about those boundaries for a long time. And you can tell that by looking at verse 15. And then you can look at verse 16. See the bank of the river Arnon? And the city that's in the midst of the river? Not really, but it's right in the middle there at the river. <laughs> you don't build cities in the middle of rivers, literally speaking. Verse 17, Heshbon and all her cities that are in the plain. Dibon. So we've already had... This city mentioned, We've, and I've read Heshbon as well. Look at Bamoth, Baal, and Beth 
Baal Meon. So when you look at a name like that, just slow down and don't read over it too fast and say, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to go on to the next verse. No, no. Slow down. Let Scorby or someone else pronounce it for you. But I want you to notice Baal or Lord, their Lord, their God. Baal in verse 17. Baal, the God of the Canaanites, the God that ate that Ahab and Jezebel fostered in Israel. So back to, back to Isaiah chapter 15. He has gone up to Bajith and to Dibon, and we just learned about those high places. They were high places to Baal. However, the chief deity of Moab, do you know him by reading your Bible and remembering things? The chief god of Moab, very clearly stated, Chemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, Chemosh. But they went up to their high places to weep. These pagan idolaters went to weep before their vain idols when they got in trouble. Though we can see from numerous places in the Bible that their chief and great deity was Chemosh, and when the high places don't work, they're going to come down to their temple to Chemosh, and it's going to tell you in these verses, and I hope you read them well enough last night, that you can remember some of these things. In addition to Ar and Kerr being wasted, the nation also howled for Nebo, Mount Nebo, and Mediba, two other cities of the Moabites. God had rejected their form of mourning for His church. Did the Bible warn in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 27 and 28, that they were not to cut the corners of their beard, nor cut their hair, nor cut and mark their skin for the dead? So see, this, there's already a difference being made when we read... In verse 2, on all their heads shall be baldness, and every beard cut off, that their mourning, instead of sackcloth and ashes and repenting to God, the Lord Jehovah of the Jews, they're doing the things that the Canaanite nations did, Moab, because Moab was, a, in effect, religiously, a Canaanite nation. And so God warns us about those traits. Let us never consider taking the ideas of pagans to use for our God. They may use them for their God, but we don't take those customs and use them for our God. God has revealed exactly what He wants us to do for His worship. Verse 3, In their streets they shall gird themselves with sackcloth. On the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone shall howl, weeping abundantly. And remember, you have had explained to you why. Because and because in verse 1. So you understand the howling, the crying, the weeping, the cutting of the hair, and the cutting of the beards is because an enemy has come in. And who is the enemy? Since Jeremiah quotes this very uses this prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 48, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Because Jeremiah is all about Nebuchadnezzar. So this is a hundred years hence when this is going to happen. Remember, last Sunday was chapters 13 and 14 about Cyrus the Persian taking Babylon, which is 200 years away. Right? It was, it was the Medes being stirred up against Babylon, 200 years away. This is 100 years away, and chapter 17 is going to be months away. Very close at hand. When the Assyrians would overthrow Syria and the ten tribes called Israel. So, so far, we've made our way to verse 3. It's all very simple. They're grieving, they're weeping, they're howling, they're moaning. 
they're doing what they do when they're frightened and they're scared and they're looking for safety. They go to their gods in the high places. They cut themselves. And verse 4, Heshbon shall cry. And Elielah, their voice shall be heard even unto Jahaz, which was an extreme part of the nation. Therefore the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out. His life shall be grievous unto him. Three more wasted cities of Moab would be crying that are in the first half of verse 4. And the armed soldiers of Moab would be afraid for their lives by the potent enemy army. Soldiers, especially when they're armed, should be the most courageous defenders of a nation. But it says, the armed soldiers of Moab shall cry out because there's a, large, there's a much larger and ferocious army there, Nebuchadnezzar and his Chaldeans. But they, like the rest of the nation, would grieve for their own lives and hopelessness. Their life should be grievous unto him. So we come to verse 5. My heart shall cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee unto Zoar, an heifer of three years old. Zoar was a city. It was not a heifer of three years old. For by the mounting up of Luhith with weeping shall they go it up. For in the way of Horonaim they shall raise up a cry of destruction. Luhith was on a mountain, and it was up. And so they went up to it, and they went up to it with weeping. And Horonaim was down, and they went down to it in a valley with a cry of destruction. So that you can understand the second half of the verse because we're going to stop here for a minute with the first half of the verse. First of all, his fugitives shall flee unto Zoar, which was another extreme border town at the south end of the Dead Sea. The fugitives of Moab would be running from the Chaldean army, and they would run as far as Zoar. They would run many miles to get away from this approaching army. And then it says, it has a comma, and it writes, and heifer of three years old. Now, I want you to understand something about your Bible and why you're taught the way you're taught. Context dictates how we understand words and phrases. And we compare spiritual things with spiritual. So I cheated. I went to Jeremiah 48. Is it cheating to use a commentary when the Lord inspired the commentary? Jeremiah 48 will tell you what those words mean and heifer of three years old. A three-year-old heifer has gained great strength and has not had a calf yet. And when they howl, or whatever other words you want to use for the noise that a heifer makes, when they do it, it is loud and distinct. And if you go to Jeremiah 48, you'll find out that his fugitives shall flee unto Zoar, and they'll be sounding, howling, and weeping like a heifer of three years old. But you don't have those words here, because God doesn't have to put them every place, because he likes you turning the pages sometimes. Right. Here a little, there a little, so that we come to understanding. Let's get to the first part of it. My heart shall cry out for Moab. We have a first person who must be the one writing. That's what we're going to assume and accept here at this passage that is weeping for Moab as well. Though Moab was an inveterate and perpetual enemy of Israel 
and deserved all that was described here, this implies Isaiah's grief and God's grief through Isaiah for what he's about to do to Moab. The question of interpretation here is, was Isaiah sincere here with grief for reprobates, though they were cousins, or is it irony? Or is it narrative liberty? The first clause here could be sarcasm or irony by Isaiah, and that would just be fine. It, you know, it's throughout the Bible. Irony is the opposite of what's intended. It's, and it's, it's sarcastic and it's mocking the howling of, and the crying and the weeping of the Moabites. For instance, when David came home from dancing before the ark with all his might, what were the words spoken by Michael or Michelle to David? How glorious was the king of Israel today? Was she commending him for glory? No. She was mocking him that he had acted like a fool and a dolt and a street urchin instead of the king that he should have acted like. That, that's irony. For 27 reasons, I'm going to choose a straightforward approach. If you were to look at the 27 reasons, you would say some of them overlap. Okay, I'll give you that. Let's call it 15 reasons. Can I share a few with you as to why I'm going to take the position? Because first of all, I have the words, my heart shall cry out for Moab. And we have Isaiah the prophet giving this prophecy. Verse 13, this is the word the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time. So here are some of my reminders to you. If you go to Jeremiah 48, it's verses 31 through 36, and we're going to run into the same thing in chapter 16. In fact, in order to save us time, let's look at verse 9 of chapter 16. Therefore I will bewail with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibma. I will water thee with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah, for the shouting for thy summer fruits and for thy harvest is fallen. Verse 11, Wherefore my bowels shall sound like an harp for Moab, and mine inward parts for Kirhirish. And so we have that in chapter 16, and we have it in Jeremiah 48. You know, an interpretive choice is, that's irony. It's sarcasm, and we could make it fit. We could make it fit fine. And we could make it fit with other judgments that God poured out upon His enemies. But we're going to take it in its most direct way as sincerity right here. And I want to remind you of these things, and it's just a few of them. We don't read of such grief at all for Babylon. And there wasn't any for the Canaanites. So this is one of the reasons. The Canaanites were simply to be annihilated. They weren't cousins or brethren, as God called Esau's descendants. God had a regard for Moab by his connection to Abraham, and I showed it to you in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Are you still troubled by his compassion? Think about Moses with wicked Israel. How many times over 40 years did Israel sin against the Lord, and I mean sin grievously, with idolatry in, in the wilderness, and God would tell Moses, stand back and let me annihilate the nation and start over with you, and Moses would fall on his face over and over, you know what you and I would do by nature? We'd stand back and make ourselves a box seat just like another prophet that we don't really want to be like. Right. 
So Isaiah wasn't really like Jonah, was he? Jonah was rebuked by God because he didn't care about the cattle. What's the last word of Jonah? Cattle. Because Jonah didn't care about the cattle. Jonah didn't care about the children and much cattle. And you know what we're seeing here? Do you know what the care is for? The vineyards. Moab had fantastic vineyards. Makes sense. The nation started with drunkenness. You say, well, that wasn't very nice. I'm not going to be nice to Moab. I'm just going to understand that Isaiah is doing a little bit of howling himself for what's about to come on them. What if you were the man of God and you had coursing through you words from the Holy Spirit describing cousins and them being utterly ruined and howling? Would it evoke any howling in you? Does the Bible tell us that Jesus wept? Did Jesus know that in five minutes he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he still weep? What was going on all around him? Weeping. Did Jesus, when he described the destruction of Jerusalem, behold the city and wept over it? God's ministers want to save men, not destroy them. And this brings us to another point. Moab is going to be offered the terms of repentance. The first five verses of chapter 16. That is an unusual circumstance. There is no repentance offered to Babylon. There was repentance offered to a man named Nebuchadnezzar long before Cyrus the Persian. Jeremiah did not desire the woeful day. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, have to parif- I just have to tell you what some verses are now. Jeremiah 17, 16, and many others, Jeremiah grieved about God's judgment on the wicked, wicked rulers of Judah that had put him in prison. Jeremiah did not desire the woeful day. That's what, how it's worded. He wrote lamentations, bewailing Judah's trouble, though the Judah that got destroyed deserved every bit of it and more. Paul would have been accursed from Christ for the rebels of the Jews in Romans chapter 9. I have mentioned Jonah. How could Isaiah blast without pity since they were cousins and even the Jews were more guilty because the Jews had been given more and they were more guilty in their idolatry. Do we want to be sons of Zeruiah and sons of thunder or like Isaiah? Remember the sons of Zeruiah? Ye are too hard for me. And so David showed us a different character. And we have recently, in Isaiah, and I do trust the providence of God completely, where every verse is located, we have learned about the difference of wolves and lambs and wolves lying down with lambs. And this shows the prophet that could give us chapters 13 and 14 and give us chapter 2. And some of the other hard chapters of Isaiah could also weep and howl and mourn and cry and shed tears over what had to come out of his mouth and from his pen about what was going to happen to his cousins. Irony is usually the last resort requiring the impossibility of any other sense. And that's, that's how we find irony. Moab's judgment was not for sins worse than Judah's sins under King Manasseh. Because remember, this is looking forward. A hundred years to Nebuchadnezzar coming. God judged Ammon for crimes against Israel. God doesn't cry for Ammon. That's the other son of Lot. He cries for Moab here through Isaiah. And do you know what he picked out as the worst thing that Moab had ever done? And it wasn't against the children of Israel. What Ammon had done was against Israel. They burned the king of Edom in lime. They burned 
the king of Edom to death. You want to see it in the Bible? Listen, you've got to get there in a hurry. It's Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos. I'll show you. God keeps track of, God keeps track of sinners, and God keeps track of sins. Amos 2, 1. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. God remembered that. Verse 13, here's Ammon. For three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with children of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. They went after cousins of the Israelites and ripped up women pregnant with children in order to expand their borders. we got to come back to Isaiah. I've put many, many hours into looking at the cross-references, and they'll be in the outline. There's a lot to be said, but we've got to keep moving, or my plans for today will be totally overthrown, and I'll be howling. I'm in, tr- I'm some, I'm in so deep of trouble right now. But, I, but this, we have to stop at 15.5. My heart shall cry out for Moab, and I take it literally in this place. I take it sincerely in this place, and there's reasons to do so. And a principal one is repentance is going to be offered. When, and I, did I mention this earlier? I hope I did. When Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar, many years of Nebuchadnezzar's atrocities were in his memory. Atrocities that happened to him. He was made a eunuch. You, know, that, you say, that's a little atrocity. No, it isn't a little atrocity. It's a pretty big one. And many other things that happened to Jerusalem that were in Daniel's mind. But did you hear Daniel? Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. Why didn't he just rejoice and say, King, I can't wait for you to wake up tomorrow. You're going to be out to pasture on a leash. Would we... Are there times where in our church we talk like that? Lord, give us the balance of the Bible. And I'm trying to share that with you. Canaanites, none. Babylon, none. Ammon, little. Moab, some. You say, well, how do I know the difference? Keep reading the Bible. And you'll learn discretion. Honestly, you'll learn discretion. Because we want to be like Jeremiah. He did not desire the woeful day. Those words I've said several times because I want you to remember them. Should we rejoice at the calamity of enemies? Oh, no, we shouldn't. The Bible warns us about that. Okay. All that comes to bear on why I made the choice. Let's, we've got to keep going. Verse, let's come to verse 6 and read down through verse 9. Isaiah 15 and verse 6. For the waters of Nimrim shall be desolate, for the hay is withered away. The grass faileth, there is no green thing. Therefore the abundance they have gotten, and that which they have laid up, shall they carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry is gone round about the borders of Moab, the howling thereof unto Eglaim, and the howling thereof unto Berelim. For the waters of Diamond, M's and B's, can be substituted for each other by the prophets, and they do it all the time. There's Merodach, Baladan, the king of Babylon that sent an ambassador to Hezekiah. Merodach, Baladan, and Baradach, Baladan. You've got to get used to it in your Bibles. We've read about Dibon, and now we're reading about Diamond. Can it be Dibon again? Yes, and it will be. Can it go from Dibon to Diamond to Dibon? From Diamond to Dibon to Diamond? Yes, it can. 
You say, why did the Lord do it that I love the way He did it? That's why we have Peter, Simon, Cephas, and one more I gave you last Sunday. Simeon. Four. Same man. For the waters of diamond shall be full of blood, for I will bring more upon diamond, lions upon him that escapeth of Moab, and upon the remnant of the land. Verse 6. The place is going to be desolate, and it was known for agriculture. It's hay, grass, and green things are all withered away. God's against the nation. They've stopped up, the, the foreign army has stopped up the water, which is what's common among them. I want to show you this by 2 Kings chapter 3, which is an important part of warfare back then, and it was an important part of warfare in World War II. It was called scorched earth policy. Do you know what scorched earth policy is? If you know what it is, then you understand. If you don't know what it is, it was burning everything that, so that the nation could not feed itself. Because part of subjugating of a foreign nation is take away its ability to feed itself. So in 2 Kings chapter 3, in verse 25, this describes what Israel did to Moab. Verse 25, And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in Kerhareseth left they the stones thereof, howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. They killed everyone in the town, but they left some, part, some of it. But they stopped up water and they put stones, and sometimes they would sow salt in fields. Do you know what salt does to concrete? Do you know what salt does to your car? Think about what it does to fields because it was a scorched earth policy. And so when we come back to Jeremiah 15, Nimrim, once known for agriculture, it's hay, it's grass, green things, withered away. There's no one to help it with a water supply. The water supply could have been stopped up and so forth. We come to seven. Therefore the abundance they have gotten and that which they have laid up shall they carry away to the brook of the willows some little place where they think they can hide it from this marauding army. You know, to hide it among the willows near a brook, in, underwater, whatever they had, whether it was gold and silver, they wanted to get rid of it so that they could make safer and faster passage away from the marauding Chaldean army. This is not a remedy of the evil, but rather a picture of bleak despair of fugitives. Listen, when you are, when you are forced to flee out of your house, you have to make a decision, what can I carry and what is valuable, and combine the two to a small path. Well, forget your vehicle. Some of you are driving, some of you are driving small houses on wheels. I've seen, I've seen you. My, my little shack on wheels gets scared when you park next to me because mine knows that you could eat it for breakfast if yours got hungry. Forget vehicles. Think of what you would carry. And so you would just carry it. You would carry some things that would be more valuable, but they would slow you down. If your intention was to get all the way to Israel for safety or, or some other nation, you might hide it in the willows by the brook. Verse 8, For the cry has gone round about the borders of Moab. It has extended to the whole nation, the howling thereof unto Eglaim, and the howling thereof unto Berelam, other border cities. Verse 9, For the waters of diamond shall be full of blood, that city, a principal city of Moab, which we've already seen back there in, in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, will be full of blood because there's going to be a massacre and a slaughter there. For I will bring more upon diamond, more trouble. 
on their capital city. Lions upon him that escapeth of Moab. If they get away from the army and are running in the countryside, I will raise up lions to come after them and upon the remnant of the land. So the remnant that is trying to survive, this is Nebuchadnezzar's time. Assyrians were going to leave a remnant, remember? But the remnant in Nebuchadnezzar's time would be eaten by lions. So we come to chapter 16. And so many more things could be said, but I, I am trusting God to lead me in how much I say to you. You can understand chapter 15 now. It's a burden on the bordering nation, the cousins of Israel. They were pagans. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Chemosh. I didn't turn you to all the passages about Chemosh. But we're going to run into him in this chapter. I read you verses 1 through 5 of chapter 16. Very different, very different words. Look. Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast, bewray not him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end, the spoiler ceaseth, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment, and hasting righteousness. What in the world are these five verses teaching us? Moab owed lambs to David and his descendants for David having defeated Moab terribly. Send the lamb. Send the lamb to the ruler. Selah was part of Moab. It's the wilderness of Moab that we've already encountered. It's describing Moab has a ruler, and the ruler is in Mount Zion. So repent and reform and pay your dues to David and his sons. Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness. That's Moab. It's the land of Moab. Who's the ruler of the land of Moab? The one that deserves the lamb. The house of David, as you can tell from the whole five verse context, unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. Send your offering to Jerusalem. Because you have a ruler. You agreed by a treaty when your nation was destroyed to pay in lambs, and you sent it to Mount Zion, do you know who they had been paying it to? Israel. A hundred thousand lambs a year paid to Israel. It's in the Bible. I'm not turning you to every place. But I want you to understand this. This is how they could reform and repent toward Judah. And so... Oh, there's, you know, I just love, I love the plan words of verse 1 versus verse 2. I tried to mention it, but I'm, I'm so short in my updates to you, you probably can't ever understand a thing that I write you. But I try. I'll, I don't want to write more words. But, but, but look at verse 1. 
The daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion. Then look at verse 2. The daughters of Moab are going to have to try to ford the river Arnon to get away from this army into another country. And so what a difference that is. I just, I just love the daughter of Zion. And I'm thankful to God for being part of the daughter of Zion. I love his words. The daughter of Zion. The church. Verse 2, For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Listen, if you don't do this, if you don't send the lamb, and if you don't send a peace offering to Judah, and who's the real ruler of your nation, this is what's going to happen to your daughters. They're going to be attempting to ford the river Arnon. Your daughters, your prized daughters, are going to be lost in the wilderness to another nation. Like a bird, a wandering bird cast out of the nest. You know, if you ever found a bird that was too young to fly out of its nest, the helplessness of that thing, it's a, it's a great word picture of the daughters of Moab. Verse 3, Moab, this is what you should do. Take counsel. Sit down and have a meeting. Execute judgment. Do what is right. Make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. You protect any Jews fleeing from the same enemy. As Jews come around the Dead Sea or across the Jordan River or take a boat across the Dead Sea, you help them. And you're going to get help from us. This was something they could do now. This was something they could do now to avoid or to, or to minimize what was coming later. Because this is the time of Isaiah, and the time of Isaiah is Israel coming in against Judah, Syria coming in against Judah, Assyria coming in against Judah, and taking all their fenced cities. Remember how we've read that? All the fenced cities of Judah were taken. And so there were lots of people fleeing in Judah as well. And so this is a possibility for them to take counsel and to do something to minimize what is coming. And so there's an opportunity for them to repent. They're not going to repent because of their pride, which is in verse 6. Take counsel. Execute judgment right now. Make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. When someone's running and the sun is open and the sun's shining on them and they're fully exposed, you become their shadow. You become where they can hide. And look at chapter 18, verse 1, when it starts out, Woe to the land, shadowing with wings. You know, the Bible speaks about hiding in the shadow under the wings of God. Right. And wings make shadow, and they were, Moab was to make a shadow to help the fugitives coming out of Judah. Execute judgment. Do what is right. Make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast. Bewray not him that wandereth. If a Jew wanders into Moab trying to escape, hide him. Edom didn't do that. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, did not do that. And so in the book of Obadiah, the crime that God brings against the Edomites was, you turned my people over to Nebuchadnezzar when you could have tried to hide them. Right. It's, it's Obadiah, verses 13 and 14. Verse 4, let mine outcast dwell with thee. Think back about Elimelech and Naomi. Think back about the parents of David. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. 
political situation in Judah is about to get better. The spoiler ceaseth, the oppressors are consumed out of the land because we're transitioning from Ahaz. Remember, we had in chapter 14, verse 28, this prophecy was in the, day, the, the year that King Ahaz died. Who was the king after Ahaz? Hezekiah. Was there a great reform? Great reform from the wicked Ahaz to the righteous Hezekiah. Judah is going to be much better. Judah will be able to take care of you if you'll take care of some of them right now. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. That is speaking of Hezekiah. We could leap to the times of the Messiah, but it doesn't fit here, and there's no necessity for us to do that because Hezekiah was changing the situation in Judah. And in mercy shall the throne be established. There will be a different kind of a ruler in the throne of Jerusalem than there has been. It will be Hezekiah, not Ahaz. Right. And he did. Hezekiah was a great king. Hezekiah was one of the four great kings of Judah. So we come to verses 6 through 8. But they're not going to hear of this. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore shall Moab howl for Moab. Everyone shall howl. For the foundations of Kerhareseth shall ye mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the heathen, have broken down the principal plants thereof. They are come even unto Jazer. They wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Verses 6 through 8. In verses 1 through 5, we have an unusual opportunity to take counsel and to execute judgment and to take care of the outcasts or fugitives of Judah. Because there would be a reversal of fortune under Hezekiah and they would be helped. The Moabites would be helped. But they didn't do it. Look at the very next verse. Do you know what the number one sin is in certain respects? Is pride. Why don't we repent when we should repent? Right. Why didn't Belshazzar repent when the hand came out on the wall, as we learned in Daniel chapter 5 last Sunday? Because of pride. Right. Pride is terrible. I don't even, how do I even tell you how bad pride is? You think you're good enough to escape. You think you're protected enough to escape. You don't want to humble yourself to the help of another person. It's all pride. Pride, pride. If a hand came out on the wall, I hope that I would fall at the feet of Daniel and grab his ankles and not let him go until he blessed me by praying to the God that sent that hand. Instead, he wanted to put a gold chain around his neck just puffing up his pride even more of this is how rich I am. I can put a gold chain around your neck. And one of the things that they were known for in addition to their sheep was their wine. And so there's a lot of mention in these next verses and a lot of mention in Jeremiah 48 about their vineyards. We have heard of the pride of Moab. It's his reputation. No one in this church should have a reputation of pride. Right. We should be willing to serve, condescend to men of low estate, get down, help children, help anyone. No economic differences, no educational differences, no intellectual differences, no physical differences. 
We serve. And we gladly serve because we love being servants. We want to be slaves to each other and help each other any way we can. So that there isn't pride. We don't want that to be our reputation. We want our reputation to be of humility and service. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. And so, and his pride and his wrath. Remember, he burned a king. They burned a king. But his lies shall not be so. Thank you, Jeremiah. His lies will not be able to affect his wrath to accomplish his desired purposes. Though he's full of pride and full of wrath and used lies to get ahead, God was not going to allow his lies to be able to promote his wrath to cause greater trouble. You can find that out in Jeremiah 48. Or you can find it out in the book of Proverbs. And the rod of his anger shall fail. A man who does not live righteously, he will not get away. His anger will not work for him like he wants it to. Verse 7, Therefore shall Moab howl for Moab. You're not going to receive any blessing by submitting and executing judgment in verses 1 through 5. Therefore Moab shall howl for Moab. Everyone shall howl. For the foundations of ker and we've already run into this Ker way back in Deuteronomy and Joshua, shall ye mourn. Surely they are stricken. Verse 8, For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma. These two towns were very close to each other. The lords of the heathen have broken down the principal plants thereof. They are come even unto Jazer. When you look at the wine country of California, and a few of you have been to the wine country of California, do you remember? You weren't very old. The wine country of California, that's a tremendous investment. It's a tremendous investment in land, and it's a tr tremendous investment in horticulture to establish those vines and to let them mature to where you can get good wine and a lot of it, where you can maximize quality and quantity at the same time and be known for it and this region was and it's 15 miles long by the Bible's description by the Bible's description here's the Bible's description the vine of Sibma the lords of the heathen have broken down the principal plants thereof when you kill and destroy and break up the principal plants of a vineyard you are taking something of great value away from the people the they that begins the first the, the, the final four clauses of verse 8 are the vines. They. You say, that's hard for me to grasp. Was it hard for you to grasp about the three-year heifer? They are come even unto Jazer, 15 miles of vineyards. That's why there's weeping over them. They wandered through the wilderness. Soldiers don't wander in the wilderness. The lords of a foreign army don't wander in the wilderness. They may go from house to house in a city, but they don't wander in a wilderness. But vines do. Vines had wandered in the wilderness of Moab all the way to the Sea of Jazer. You say, how do you know it's the Sea of Jazer and it was only a lake? Because of Jeremiah. And so when you read this, it's not the Mediterranean Sea. And it's not the Caspian Sea. And it's not the Sea of Japan. What sea is it? The Sea of Jazer. What kind of a sea was that? It was a lake. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the vineyards. The lords of the heathen have broken down the principal plants thereof. They are come even into Jazer. These vines had grown all over this region. 
They wandered through the wilderness, the vines. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea to the lake or the sea of Jazer, as Jeremiah calls it in Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 32. Verse 9, Therefore, I will bewail with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibma. I will water thee with my tears, O Heshman, and Elielah, for the shouting for thy summer fruits and for thy harvest is fallen. There would no more be the celebration that wine country has when they have a vintage. When they pick their grapes and they put their grapes in a wine press and they press the wine out of their grapes and they make wine and they get the return for a vineyard, it is a time of celebration. And it's found in other places, but it is certainly right here that it would no longer be. The shouting, because you're shouting. You wait all year long. And uh, of course, you're testing a little bit of product or last year's product to be of any value because grape juice has no value. You get into the spirit of celebration, of harvest time. When we read about Nabal, and we go to 1 Samuel 25 where we read about Nabal. He, he, didn't have, he wasn't working a vineyard. He was working a flock of sheep and he was shearing those sheep. But it's the same thing. It's an annual harvest and it was a time of celebration. And he had drunk himself drunk so that Abigail didn't tell him anything until the next morning. Because it was a time of celebration, it's never a time to get drunk. But the shouting would disappear. The shouting would go away. And that's what it's saying in verse 9. I will be whale with the weeping of Jazer, the vine of Sibma. I will water thee with my tears, O Heshbon and Elielah, for the shouting for thy summer fruits and for thy harvest is fallen. And gladness is taken away and joy out of the plentiful field. The Bible knows that when God said in sunshine and we have worked hard in agriculture, that the result is lots of food and we rejoice inside. Acts 14, 17 says that it is one of the witnesses he's left to the world that he is a good God. He sends food and gladness into our hearts by sunshine and rain on harvest time so that we can have a harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy of the plentiful field and the vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. God has taken away their joy. I want you to know that God knows joy. God knows human joy, and God has arranged for us to have various things that bring human joy, but He can take them away. He can take them away, and He can give us joy that doesn't need them. It's all in the Bible. David said in Psalm 4-7 that he had more joy than when their wine and corn increase. And so we've got to keep the same perspective that Colin gave us a little while ago. The joy that we get, even from things he blesses. And he blessed Moab to have a very, very great vineyard of 15 miles between the Sibma and Jazer. And yet he took it all away so that they wouldn't have that joy and they wouldn't have that shouting. And God took away the tranquility and the joy and the pleasure of Nebuchadnezzar so that he was put out to pasture and God can do the same thing to us. Yet, and I, I'm repeating myself, for a purpose, God can give you joy without those circumstances in Psalm 4 and verse 7. And sometimes it's to our profit to get rid of the joy ourselves to take up mourning. Because sometimes we should give up gladness for mourning to draw nigh to God in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. 
And so just remember these lessons. These are practical lessons. God sees joy, and God knew what made Moab happy, and God took away what made Moab happy. Are you hearing me now? He can take away your tranquility. He can take away your happiness. Wherefore, my bowels shall sound like an harp for Moab, and mine inward parts for Kerharish, because they were going to lose. And and in the prophet Isaiah, being fed these words by the Holy Spirit, to either to speak or to write them down, he joined in with them, seeing the horror that was coming upon the nation, the blood filling the Arnon River, which was a major river because of Diamond or Dibon, whichever place you're reading at the time, of those being slaughtered there and of the vineyard being taken away. We come to verse 12. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. That's a summary. Remember at the very beginning when they went to their high places? Look back at chapter 15, verse 2. He has gone up to Bajath and to Dibon, the high places, to weep. But notice here, And it shall come to pass, when it is seen, when it is understood that Moab isn't going to escape by ordinary devotions, it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, they keep weeping, and they keep calling out to their gods of the high places to save them, that he shall come to his sanctuary to pray. He'll come down to the temple to Chemosh to pray, but he shall not prevail. It won't work. And so it was over for Moab. His pride wouldn't let him repent. His gods were the wrong gods that could help him. They couldn't help him. This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning Moab since that time, since he began his prophecy in verse 1 to this point, but now the Lord hath spoken. See, that is a prophecy. And here's a little P.S. Here's a little addendum to the prophecy. But now the Lord hath spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of an hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be contemned with all that great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. They would build up again. Oh, just like we read through the book of Judges. Israel is great, very prosperous. God sends a foreign army in to destroy them and they're reduced to poverty, killed off, hiding their, hiding their produce, don't have any weapons of war. In, the Lord sends a deliverer, a judge, to free them for 20 years, 40 years. And at the end of that time, they're very prosperous again. Because when God blesses, people do prosper. Right. I mean, Moab was there in the time of Abraham, and Abraham's descendants grew into a mighty nation, and Lot's descendants grew into two decent nations and they could grow into that again but this is a distinction right here between verses 13 and 14 this is the word of one prophecy but i've got another one for moab it's going to happen in three years and remember i want to remind you how do we know that through verse 21 of genesis of isaiah 15 and isaiah 16 through verse 21 occurred by nebuchadnezzar because of jeremiah jeremiah was still prophesying this a hundred years later So those verses couldn't have been fulfilled in three years. In three years, it just says his glory is going to be taken away and be contemned as a nation, and he's going to be reduced. By whom? By the Assyrians that came 100 years in front of the Babylonians. You say to me, what does it mean as the years of an hireling? This is beautiful. 
when you, when you hire a man for wages, he never forgets his last day and how much you're going to pay him. Do you understand that? Because as the book of Deuteronomy teaches, they set their mind on it. So all the while they're digging, all the while they're baling hay, all the while they're carrying it up and stacking it in a barn, they do not forget when they get to quit. Have you ever had an employee work for you that didn't know when it was time to quit? They all know when it's time to quit. As the years of an hireling, meaning it will be three years, not more, not less. Exactly three years. It will not be fudged. It will not be changed. It will be three years. And so we have two chapters that tell us about God's judgment of Moab. This is part of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 15 and 16. I hope that there were things along the way that if you go back and we'll spend just a little bit of time reading it again, you'll say, you know, that's a, that's a lesson. The, the warning of verses 1 through 5 is a lesson. It's, it's why I started with Daniel 4.27 this morning about lengthening our tranquility by breaking off our sins by righteousness. The, the crying of God's heart and Isaiah's heart together, because Isaiah was inspired in verse 5 of chapter 15 and in verses 6 through 9, or verses 9 through 11 of chapter 16, and again in Jeremiah 48, that's, that's a lesson for us, that we do not want to desire the woeful day, that we don't want to be the sons of Zeruiah, we don't want to be the sons of thunder. Remember Jesus told James and John, ye do not know what spirit ye are of. It was a wrong spirit. We want to be of the right spirit. And Jesus even wept over those that were going to crucify him. Jesus was able to ask his Father in heaven to forgive them for what they were doing to him on the cross of Calvary. Stephen could do the same thing. We want to find that holy balance and learn lessons from even chapters like this. God has a list for America. For three transgressions and for four, he will not forget her abortions. He is not going to forget what she has done to marriage between a man and a woman. He didn't forget it in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's not forgetting it here. Let's make sure that we live in such a way by taking counsel and executing judgment that when the wrath falls, he'll spare us in the midst of it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.